Welcome to Absurdist Asylum. I'm Jason Velarde, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brad Cousy. In this episode, Jackie Chan meets Jackass. It's movie night in the asylum. Hey, welcome to Absurdist Asylum. It's me, Jason Velarde. I'm joined, as always, by Brad Cousy. First of all, Brad, how are you doing today? I'm swell, Jason. Thank you for asking. Yeah, that sounds... uh, quite quite proper you know the the reason why i bring you on the show is because you do bring a touch of professionalism and uh maybe it's what we need you know you're the you're the the doctor to my patient or maybe i'm the doctor and that's the scary part i think uh one thing when you think of when you think of dream teams like you and i you certainly don't think of jackie chan and johnny knoxville maybe you maybe you don't maybe the listeners out there don't but I mean, that sounds like a movie I would cast if I was if I was still 14 and I got to pick my favorite actors to be in a movie. And when I was looking around online for fun movies to for us to watch, interesting movies for us to watch that I had never heard of, I came across a movie called Skip Trace, uh, starring Johnny Knoxville and Jackie Chan. And I got to say, I, I walked into this movie expecting to hate it, and or not maybe not hate it, but expecting to be for things to be a little weird, but um, it was actually great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Did you Did you get a chance to watch this one, Brad? Yeah, I did. I actually watched it when it came out back in 2016, I think is when it was released. Um, but I watched it recently again for the podcast. And you pick up a lot more definitely the second time watching it. But speaking to Jackie Chan and uh, Johnny Knoxville, I totally understand why you were maybe a little skeptical to see how this is going to turn out. Cause you know, Jackie Chan does a lot of like comedy action movies and Johnny Knoxville just usually gets his ass kicked on camera. Most of the time. He didn't not do that in this movie. That's one of the, the great things about casting a film with two essentially professional stuntmen. I don't know how much, prof- how much you want to call Johnny Knoxville professional, but he's more professional than, a lot of people I know, he knows how to take a blow and how to, to land a fall. The, the, the great part about this is that you can get like the close-ups of the oohs and ahs when, uh, you know, like John Knoxman and Jackie Chan, they both, uh, I, I'm sure Jackie Chan does less of his own stunts, but they both uh, have been in the, the action films for, for quite some time. I mean, Jackie Chan actually does a lot of his own stunts. He, he doesn't really think anyone else can give a better performance than him, if, you know, as, as, a, as a stunt actor. So he does a lot of his own stunts. And that's actually one of the favorite things I like about Jackie Chan's movies is while the credits are rolling, you watch all the, the outtakes of just Jackie Chan getting his ass whooped or, you know, he'll be doing something really cool and he'll fuck up at the end and he'll rack himself on a bar or he'll get knocked off of a huge building and everyone's like, oh, my God, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I've said it once before on this show, and I'll say it again. This movie ended the best way any movie could ever end with a blooper reel. Uh, I, I mean, especially I, 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 a lot of people, I think even Jeff said when we were talking about it before, that it, like, takes you out of the movies. You spend all this time kind of, like, getting invested in the story and, like, learning to love the characters and then you see their conclusion, whatever that may be, happy, sad, indifferent. But he, you know, he said that, and then to see them like goofing and like laughing and you know, uh, basically screwing up, 
kind of like takes you out of the realism, but I think it gives you a better appreciation and understanding of maybe just, just a little sliver of the, like the filming process. And it's not all, you know, you have these things that are highly coordinated. Sure. But it's not all one go and you're done. It takes, it takes a lot of rehearsal and getting things wrong. It's a nice little, little metaphor for life. It's like every life's going to have a little, have some bloopers every now and again. That and most of the movies that Jackie Chan plays in, he's always like a detective and they're like, you need to get, get off this case or you're too close. And he's like, fuck that. I'm going to find this guy on my own. Like that's, that was all of the rush hour movies. Yeah. <laughs> and that's also what happens in this movie. I, I think he's a cop though, not a detective. Yeah. I will go into the, uh, the story of the movie a little bit. Jackie Chan is um, Benny Chan, a Hong Kong policeman. And in the very opening scene, he loses his partner and his partner prom- makes him promise to protect his daughter. And so of course he promises his partner dies. Then you cut to 10 years later, I believe it was. And uh, Johnny Knoxville kind of gets this daughter character, Samantha, entangled in with, uh, well, she was kind of digging into it on her own because uh, Jackie Chan had believed that he was the guy who, who uh, killed her father. So she, she was kind of digging into it on her own too. But Johnny Knoxville's character gets her entangled. And so John, uh, Jackie Chan goes, he, they start out in Russia and they kind of trek across back to China to bring Johnny Knoxville back because they say that he stole money from the casino, but there's really like an evil ulterior motive as to why they brought him. They want him back because he witnessed a murder in this casino. And he's the only one that can put away the antagonist in the film because he's the only witness and the Hong Kong police or detective squad or whatever they're called over there they're like they've been fighting what like 10 years to like put this guy behind bars i'm pretty sure it's it's the hong kong power rangers over there isn't it i believe so yeah Yeah. i think they they all wear but they're all the blue power rangers all the blue yep correct (laughs) that's facts i checked it google it yeah and so the 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 bad guy character for the majority of the movie is named victor wong and uh he's like this like well-to-do businessman kind of like really like looked upon well in the public image but jackie chan's character keeps saying well he's this he's this evil crime kingpin the matador which is probably one of the weirdest names for uh for a a chinese or possibly japanese character like that's the nickname they gave him was the matador matador yeah at no point did i ever see a bull or anything yeah, they never really gave any like reasoning as to why he might be called the Matador either. Just, just like I want a cool crime boss name. I'm either gonna be Zordon or the Matador. <laughs> or no, Zordon, Zordon was already taken. Zordon so. was the good guy. I fucked it up. It's uh, it's Zed and Rita was the bad power, the Power Ranger bad guys. Right, but those are already copyrighted. They're like, damn yeah. it, what else could I do? Well, I guess Matadors are the only thing left. So. Guess that's so, my name. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it worked out well for him. So this film was uh, had a lot of production influence from China. A lot of the production companies were Chinese companies, and it actually wound up grossing. Oh gosh, I had the number right in front of me. Eight hundred and seventy million Chinese yuan. Um, I looked it up. It's somewhere the exchange rate 
said it was somewhere around like 112,000, uh, 112 million US dollars, but that, that didn't seem right. That's quite a lot, but there are a lot of people in China, so I could just be ignorant. But it's a shame that uh, it wasn't more popular over here in the US. You said you saw it when it came out? Yeah, I don't, it wasn't in theaters though. Like I think when it came out, I waited probably a few weeks and then I think it came on, or no, it was a DVD that was in the five, it was in the 599 bin at Walmart. And I was like, oh shit, this looks kind of good. I'll give that a watch. Yeah. Well, that just speaks to, to how popular it was. You're not getting like the Marvel, you know, you're not getting Iron Man in the 599 bin at Walmart. You're getting skip trace with uh, Jackie Chan and Johnny Knoxville. Yeah, but I mean, I knew about the movie and I was like, well, like, I'll just wait and I'll watch it another time. I'm too busy. And then I usually go dumpster diving into those uh, those 599 bins. You find some gold in there. Oh, oh and I, I think yeah. this is one of the gems that was in there. Yeah, the wife and I have definitely been digging through the 599 DVD bins at Walmart. Yeah, it's not all garbage. The opening scene in this movie, they kind of are like trying to stake out um, Jackie Chan's character. And two other Hong Kong detectives that you like, you get like this really like stylized intro of like, this is their names, but then you don't, you don't see them. You know, you only see one of the characters for the whole rest of the movie. And it's like a really quick scene, but the opening scene is particularly impressive because if you watch the bloopers, you can tell that they did this scene on like a studio set with like a green screen behind them. But they actually like built out these on the water style, like village huts that actually like look like they're lived in. But that's not really the impressive part. The impressive part is that they built them all to like fall over dominoes style, kind of at the climax of the fight scene that inevitably happens because it's Jackie Chan. I actually wonder whose idea that was because when I was watching it, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's not how buildings crumble. But I don't know. It was one of those like in the moment things where you're like, oh, is he going to make it? Because spoiler alert, he's running through this like village type water based thing as it's crumbling behind him. Kind of like uh, Indiana Jones and the temple. Uh, is it Temple of Doom when the boulder is? Boulder, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Like he's running away from the destruction and barely makes it out alive. Yeah. And it's, I mean, in in the moment when you're watching it, it's obviously kind of fake. But if you, especially you know, doing what we do, watching this movie a couple of times, you actually get an appreciation for like the effort and planning that it took to make that actually happen. Because it it all, they almost fell over as if they were like on hinges at the bottom, or something like that. Because the whole the whole structure stayed relatively upright as just the the legs themselves that kind of folded over. Uh, almost like a like a table. I wonder if you said dominoes earlier, and I wonder if that was like the visual, like, oh, what if they fall over like dominoes? And that's I'm guessing that's what they planned. Yeah. So you mentioned visuals, and the if you don't plan on sitting through it, the movie could almost lose you in the first, I don't know, ten seconds where the scene with Jackie Chan is talking with his partner. Because there is some crazy camera work. I don't know if there's a particular technique. This is called, if you even remember seeing it. But they're like zooming in and out and like wobbling back and forth on the guy who's got this bomb strapped to him. And it's just like, it's almost like you're on a, like a roller coaster ride around this dude as he's trying to like explain like, protect my daughter and take my watch. 
I don't I don't know if that's like I don't can't recall seeing that in a movie before. It it, it is kind of hard to exactly figure out how they achieve certain shots because you're not seeing the rig that they use. I mean, my guess is it was a steady cam, which is like a a big stabilizer system for the camera, and one person operates the movements, and you basically just run around with this. It's like handheld, but it stabilizes handheld. And that's how they were able to get in and out so quickly and moving with the characters. And then somebody's controlling focus, you know, remotely and somebody's controlling focus remotely. It's kind of a pretty advanced system. If that's how I think they did it, I could be completely wrong. And they could just had some dude hold it in his hand and run around the whole thing. Maybe, maybe. Uh, there are like a couple of cheesy, like really cheesy kind of like almost roll your eyes parts at the very beginning of this movie, particularly the like scene where we first meet Johnny Knoxville's character and he's sitting, I guess it's not where we first meet him, but he's sitting on an airplane telling a story <laughs> about how his mom and his dad like got together. And he, he basically like retells the, well, they, they reference it in the movie. He retells the story of the notebook as if it were his parents to like, a group of stewardesses and a couple of other like airline passengers. I think, I think it was probably a deliberate choice by Knoxville to just like overact to that scene. Um, and I don't know, maybe it maybe looking back on it right now is he was definitely just trying to sell the story to these people that he's telling, but it seemed, it seemed like a little cheesy and drawn out when I was watching it for the first and even the second time. Yeah, for, for Johnny Knoxville being the type of person who just gets his ass kicked in front of a camera all the time, he doesn't have a whole lot of lines. So when he is given, you know, narrative dialogue lines, and they're like, all right, here's this really sad story, you got to sell it. Yeah, he's probably going to overact it. But I actually think that helps create that character because he's a con artist. Yeah. You very quickly find out, oh, he's a con artist. Like, within the first, what, three minutes of meeting this character. So I think overselling that story definitely helps play. Yeah, and I think when this movie came out, maybe he was still kind of working on his acting shop. But Johnny Knoxville himself has actually uh, been quite a strong, quite a, I, th I think he's a good actor. Uh, I just watched Action Point, and it's like, while that's not, oh, yeah. doesn't require a whole lot of, acting chops as they put it in the biz or drama yeah it's it's like he's he's really good at selling a story he's really good at selling that he cares for the girl that he uh is 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 his daughter in action point and i actually i thought it was his his actual daughter because i know he's got a daughter of similar age she might actually even be older now that i think about it but she might be in it it's like a background character but uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't think the issue is with Johnny Knoxville's acting. Like I said, thinking back on it, I think it was probably just a deliberate choice to kind of oversell that story and make it seem a little bit obvious, but he's still such a con man that like these, these people are falling for it. I actually think he's a really, I liked him in walking, was it walk tall or, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen that. That's a good one. I need to watch. He's in that as well. And he actually did a really good job in that. I think that might be his first actual like narrative role. And that was with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. So, like, that's kind of a lot to live up to. Yeah. <laughs> There's the tie-in for the, the last movie we watched this Dooms, Dwayne the Rock, Rock Johnson. It all connects. Yeah, it's, it's uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? Watching this movie a few times, you actually gain a bit of an appreciation for uh, some of the things that you may not notice 
in the the start uh, the first time you watch it because you're so enthralled in the story the costume design on this movie was actually quite fantastic from the the simple stuff where uh johnny knoxville is just kind of like a standard american cowboy get up at this casino all the way to like the super elaborate mongolian costumes that they have in one of the scenes it's it's funny how much it adds to a movie to just have like a good costume design even in scenes where like the mongolian scene you kind of expect it just because you want to like get across that culture and want to let people know visually where they're at but just in the casino like the the little bits of flair on the dudes uh one of the bad guys tucks and yeah a lot of uh a lot of successful movies you'll find had a lot of budget and really good art departments. An art department consists of costumes, you know, wardrobe, set deck, props, all that kind of stuff. If you don't have a good art department, it's harder to sell a location that you're filming at. So with the casino, they had to tailor the wardrobe to the, you know, the set deck and props of that location. And throughout this movie, they indulge in quite a bit of different types of culture and I think all the different types of wardrobe help sell exactly when they get to those parts in the movie. Yeah. You mentioned props. I think that's another thing that this movie really had going for it. And I, I'd like to give a hand, a little clap clap to the props department of this movie for, well, it, some things that they did really like creatively where they had the, the bomb that we mentioned that was strapped to the dude was actually it was pretty clearly just a set of dumbbells, like with a time, a little time clock to it, which is like, all right, that's like really creative. But then they had to pull some strings and get in one of the scenes, they had to like buy a car and they wind up with this like beater old, like pickup truck, truck, tuck, tuck, <laughs> truck, truck, little beater pickup, tuck, tuck that has like a bulldog emblem uh bulldog hood ornament where do you even who do you start calling to even find that stuff like sure maybe you're in hollywood and and you got some better avenues but that's pretty specific i mean just to see that is like visually representative of the area that they're in which is like a poor eastern neighborhood and they they filmed a lot of that in china and japan i think that's where most of it was filmed i don't think i actually don't think any of it was filmed in the states but I, I'm sure they found some kind of like three wheel truck thing probably used for like food deliveries. And they're like, all right, let's just tear this apart and make it look like nothing. Anyone's ever going to be able to buy giving it some flair. Like you were mentioning. When you say that they filmed in China, it's, it's interesting doing research for this movie. One Jackie Chan is like a bigger celebrity in China than, than most people are celebrities here. Um, just because he's one of the like few that's transitioned over to American film. There's actually like a blog where just some of the people in the village that they were in and one of the scenes in the movie were just like following him and the film crew around, just like taking shitty cell phone pictures of Jackie Chan and putting it up on their blog. Yeah, he he's an all-star over there. I remember there was an interview a long time ago, I think it was during Rush Hour, when he started like really hitting all that that money. And uh he wasn't even allowed to really go to Hong Kong because he would be spotted everywhere. And it got to a point where when he was in Hong Kong, he had to be, he had to like isolate himself to the hotel rooms or wherever the hell he was. Not really with security. I don't think he ever had security, but like he talked about like, I can't go anywhere here. I'm, I'm too popular. And everybody kind of wants to have, you know, their 
10 seconds of fame, but he's had it for, I think he's been in movies for the last like 30 something years, 40 years. Yeah. I mean, I've been watching Jackie Chan movies for, for a long time, like all the way back to like legend of the drunken master to rush hour. And he's been one of my, one of my favorites. And I, I realized at watching this that I don't watch near as much Kung Fu movies as I used to. Cause I used to watch a lot of like Jackie Chan movies and I had DVDs for rush hour. And I, I used to really enjoy that, but I think, I think it's more his like comedic kind of martial arts style that I really gravitated to. Cause yeah. Cause when, when he's not doing martial arts, he's usually that serious character. Like we got to go, we got to go. We got to find the bad guy and put him down. But it's the, it's the funny ways he defeats his opponents they're not standard. Like he's not just punching and kicking them. He's throwing random shit or he's using random weapons, things you would never consider as weapons yeah, or self-defense items. And he's like, he'll pick up a teddy bear and he'll use a teddy bear. Maybe not a teddy bear. I don't think I've actually ever seen him do that, but something that's just unconventional as a weapon. But I mean, he does use, yeah, he does use toys. Like even in this movie there in, and, and we'll talk about the the uh, this movie trope for a second. But they're in this factory where they're like clearly building and packing Russian nesting dolls. Oh, that's right. And, and he uses uh, basically uses one like each layer is like blocking a punch as it breaks apart. Um, but let's talk about a movie trope for a second. And it's like, and this movie kind of like even sang at home even more. But who's leaving all these? abandoned empty factories with all their machinery running for people to fight on or run through or race through like what and no security like yeah what's all free game yeah what's going on here (laughs) i mean it would make it really hard to film if they had all that security (laughs) i mean but yeah fair enough fair enough uh realistic points of the story yeah that's kind of i feel i feel like a lot of if you think of any movie scene where there's a warehouse or like uh, an industrial building or like some big business office, you're, you're not going to be allowed to fight there. Someone's going to come and rip your ass out of the, at least call the police. Yeah. And some of these scenes go on for 15 to 20 minutes. Like you think the police would already be called by that and kicking them out of there. So uh, one of the worst lines in this movie was in this fight scene where they're they're fighting against, uh, I don't even think we've touched on who the Russians are in this movie. The Russians want to uh, have Johnny Knoxville come back to Russia because apparently he got this mob boss's daughter pregnant. So the whole time they're trying to make their way back to China, they have this Russian crew chasing him. And uh, in the movie, uh, Jackie Chan is fighting this like badass Russian chick with leather and like brass knuckles and he uh, runs by a set of pipes and tries to, and like squeezes by and the, the chick squeezes by too, except she gets caught. Jackie Chan looks down at her and says, D's. And she says, double D's. It's like, I mean, I, you're going for a laugh, but yeah. Cause her boobs caught, like stopped her from getting through. Yeah. But I don't know. It just seemed like, I mean, I guess you try to like, if you have a hot chick in a movie, you use her. Like got to use those assets. Yeah, I mean, you you didn't. I don't know. It just seemed it seemed excessive. It was funny though. I'm not mad at the the chick and the the Russian chick with the leather and all that. That's all fine by me. But 
yeah, it seemed a seemed a bit excessive when they're just like Jackie Chan is just staring at her tits. Like oh, yeah. it could also be that Jackie Chan's not like a romantic sexual character. He actually shies away from a lot of like intimacy. And I don't know if that's a culture thing or not, but in a lot of the Jackie Chan movies, anytime there's a moment of intimacy, he's usually like really shy about it. And so that might be like a why they kept that part of his character where he's like, oh, boobs. <laughs> I'm a super badass, you know, Kung Fu master guy, but I'm going to stop and I'm going to stare at your boobies. So now that we're talking about intimate parts, uh, I'm pretty sure I got myself on some government watch lists because there's a scene in the train where they're eating oh, yeah. and uh, they're eating this food. It looks pretty tasty, but Jackie Chan says it's goat testicles. And uh, I Googled goat testicle Chinese food, and now I'm definitely on a few watch lists. Um, so if I disappear into a black bag, we know we know why. It's because I was looking up goat testicles on the internet. <laughs> I'm sure that's not the worst thing you've looked up on the internet. Uh, you can prove nothing. <laughs> Actually, uh, Americans eat. You ever have you ever had Rocky Mountain oysters? I have had Rocky Mountain oysters. I had okay. Rocky Mountain oysters fed to me. I had a plate down, sat down in front of me one time, and I ate the whole plate. And then my then my mom, my stepmom, told me what they were, and I asked for seconds. I don't think I, I don't think I'd go back again, but they're tasty. I mean, my I family I've ever had an issue eating them. My family's yeah. cattle ranchers, so I've seen them harvested. My grandpa used to keep a, a coffee tin full of fresh ones just ready, oh. ready to be cooked. Yeah, I, I think if I watched them do it, I probably wouldn't eat them. I mean, maybe it might take a while for me to pop one in my mouth. But uh, it's kind of one of those things where you don't always want to know how your food is cooked or processed or prepared. You just want to enjoy it. Yeah, I don't think I ever ate one of the ones that I saw harvested. If that that there's a there's a bit of a disconnect there. I'm like, oh, this one this one was lucky. This one had brown spots. <laughs> for for those of you who don't know what Rocky Mountain oysters are, they are the nuts of a bull or cattle, and they're cooked in a way, I guess that kind of resemble the innards of an oyster. Yeah, they're just like deep fried. Is that what they? Is just deep fried? Yeah, yeah. I mean they. I don't think they would sell very many if they put, you know, bull balls in a can or nuts in a can. Right. Have a, have a little tin of smoked bull testicles. Yeah. <laughs> but they actually are pretty tasty. So go out, get yourself a can, watch this movie. <laughs> Let's see. On the train, where were they headed? They were headed back to China. And I forget why they, why did they get off the train? Did the, it, did the ride just end or? I thought, they were being chased off the train. Probably. Probably. They were being chased a lot through this movie. Most of the motivation to go to a new location is because somebody caught up to them and they're trying to stop them. And they're like, no, nope, we got to go. Like I said before, there's a lot of like cheesiness, corniness in this movie. But one of my favorite, the, my favorite cheesy corny scene is where the, the bad guys gets his minions to go attack Samantha, the daughter that Jackie Chan is supposed to protect. And they attack her like in her home. And earlier in the movie, Jackie Chan had given her a taser. So at some point in the fight, the uh, bad guys break her fish tank and are standing in the stagnant water. She just takes her taser and sticks it in the water. (laughs) They have like this cheesy, like electrocuted 
<laughs> like like ridiculous like face i i mean i think we all know the tasers don't work that way guys but um that that's almost like a slapstick comedy like looney tunes type thing which i thought was i thought was good in this movie it, it definitely was like not that there was a lot of like tension that ne- needed to be levity levitied but uh it was it was pretty funny there's a lot of completely um, implausible ways that these uh, goons get their ass kicked, especially with that one. I mean, most people can put two and two together. Water and electricity don't mix, so you stick it in there. Oh, look, they're they're fried. Yeah. Oh, so they they jumped off the train. I'm not sure why. Looks like it looked like somebody was uh, coming down the hallway. But yeah, uh, they were being like chased off or something. Yeah. Or they're trying to get ahead of it. So after they get off the train, that's when they buy the like beat up truck. The beat up truck breaks down. They wind up having to walk through the Mongolian desert and they run into uh, this little Mongolian kid who fell off his horse. Knoxville tries to steal his horse. And, um, but then they kind of get like chased back and uh, picked up by this, these Mongolian horsemen. And, uh, they wind up having to fight this big Mongolian guy who's who's like the <laughs> the Mongolian Hulk. <laughs> I forget what they called him. But uh the Hungarian Hulk, that dude from Russia. Have you uh, seen that guy? Oh, I haven't seen him, but I think I maybe I have. So uh the the little kid tells his family, who's like watching Johnny Knoxville and Jackie Chan get beat up by this guy. He tells him, Oh, that guy tried to help me when I fell off my horse. So they wind up partying with these Mongolians. They have this like kind of like little montage like scene with some fun little raver music behind it where they're all drinking and getting torched. And then at the end of the night, Jackie Chan's sitting by the fire. And do you, do you remember what song he, he started singing? Jackie Chan. Uh, I just watched it earlier today, too. I can't remember the name of it, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a popular like, pop song, isn't it? Yeah, Jackie Chan belts out Adele's Rolling in the Deep. That's what yeah. it was. Not only does Jackie Chan sing the first uh, the first verse by himself, but the whole like Mongolian horde starts joining in with him, and uh, I gotta say I'm not I'm not mad at it. It was pretty it was pretty entertaining. I watched the first time I watched this with my wife, she was laughing, uh, and I cannot get Jackie Chan singing "Rolling in the Deep" out of my head. So, and it actually wasn't bad. Yeah, if you if you find me with a bullet in my brain, it's because that was the only way I could get it out. <laughs> yeah, it was actually pretty good. I I don't know why they chose to. Let's just make this scene a musical. Yeah, but I uh, I don't know. I think it kind of fit like because they were partying and they were kind of like high school partying, like bonfire out in the middle of nowhere. They had tables set up and they're playing like the mongolian version of beer pong so instead of like red solo cups it's these like silver petri dishes and they're tossing a coin i think i'm not sure what they were tossing but it was it was fun watching like them all get shit face drunk kind of like in an american style but Mm -hmm. in a completely remote location It, it 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 may not be one of the defining moments in the movie but it was definitely one that you'd walk out of the theater like like did i really just watch jackie chan sing adele I wonder why they chose that song too. Like did Odell, did it Odell, did Odell like drop some money into the movie or was, was her song coming out around then? 
when did that song come out? You know, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I would, I would have to assume that it was probably just like a selling point in the movie because they're trying to market it to a Chinese audience. They've got this big American star, you know, it's like as much as a star as Johnny Knoxville is. I'm sure the people over there know his name because especially considering jackass is not something that needs to be translated for people to enjoy it. Like you just watch people get like hit and hurt and all that, like no matter what language you're in. Yeah. It's universal. So I would assume that they were probably, it was probably just like a marketing thing. Like they probably had that in maybe not the trailer. I, I think I watched the American trailer, but, but yeah, it was probably just to like sell a couple extra tickets. Like if you also like Jackie Chan, you might also like Adele. And this is the movie for you. Buy your tickets now. Buy them now. (laughs) On sale, you can. Fandango. So we've had a few yucks. uh, And there was uh, a scene in this movie where they are basically like rafting down a river. And uh, they have to, because they're running away from this Russian squad. And at this point, they've also been arrested by the Chinese police on... uh, murder and what was it conspiracy to commit murder for the girl that like johnny knoxville saw the bad guy murder so the bad guy set them up for this murder um and they're running from the police and they have to wind up jumping on this raft made out of inflated pigs i assume it was like (laughs) what was it what were those it looked like pigs right you know like back in the day when like native americans would make like bladder bags like for water bottles yeah I think that's ex- pretty much what it was, but it was in the shape of a pig. Like they took, maybe it was just pig's hide that's like cured and stitched together. Yeah. But basically it was like an inflatable pig. Um, but they're on this raft. And actually there is an article that I found that Jackie Chan talks about this scene saying that he uh, considered that his life was in danger in the scene because he got too far away from the, like the safety and he actually can't swim. He was, he says that some of the, the screams of him asking for help in the movie were like actual, like he was scared screams because uh, he doesn't swim and he was like floating down this river. He, he said he can swim. He just can't swim well. Like he could barely tread water, but they were also in like a rapids. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a little like a lazy river at Elitch's. Yeah. He's not going to do well. <laughs> I wonder when the director says, all right, so uh, we're going to, can you play off the fact that you think you might die in this river? And he's probably like, Oh yeah, that's probably genuine. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. I got this. <laughs> yeah. I could do that. Don't even need acting school. Um, you said you had done some research and found that there was some other uh, things that went on behind the scenes. Uh, yeah. Throughout the whole movie, you actually see some stuff, some of the, you know, the outtakes and mess ups at the end rolling the credits, but um, there was actually a death on this film. Jason, did you research this? I did. Um, I, I, I found out kind of in the same article where I found out about Jackie Chan uh, having um, the issue on the river. And it was, it was weird that they headlined the title like Jackie Chan talks about him almost dying when like the subtext of the article was that one of the cinematographers on the film, and I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to read it, is Chan Kwok Hung had actually fallen off one of the one of the the camera props or whatever you want to call it one of the camera settings and fallen and uh passed away due to drowning he says oh it was a boat that he was on um and he fell off and, and he capsized. was yeah it was unable to uh swim back to shore 
I think they said it was like it was a, a steamboat that they were using to record to get really close to you know the talent because you can only do so much with lenses and so the boat I don't know if it hit a rock or if it just got hit by a wave so hard that but it, it capsized the boat and I think there were eight to nine people that hit the water and they only had to swim 30 yards I think is what they said to get to shore and the only one that didn't make it was the he was actually the main cinematographer for the whole film oh geez so like you know there's the director there's the director of photography or cinematographer it was that guy yeah and I mean it's it's a shame that the movie has to be kind of like tainted by that but I'm sure that they did something to kind of honor him uh, he was 51 when he, he drowned on Lantau Island, which is one of the filming locations. They did do something toward the end, and I can, I can speak about that toward the end when we get past part of it. But I'm going to say now, they, they did a, you know, in most movies when somebody dies or passes away, they usually roll all the credits and then do it at the end, saying, in loving memory of this guy. Well, and I don't know if this is a culture thing as well, or they just how they do movies over there, but it's the first thing you see before the credits roll. So because not, I think it's because not everybody sits through the credits. So you have to wait to watch all the credits in America to usually see those kind of homages paid to, you know, the people that passed away during set. So, but they do it right in the beginning. It says in loving memory and it's a picture of him. Yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of the times in movies, when an accident will happen or somebody dies on set, it happens in front of the camera. Um, and especially in the case of like when bad accidents happen, they, uh, the actor a lot of the time, like requests that that footage actually be used in the movie. Um, you know, there's times when people have like when Tom Cruise broke his ankle, trying to jump that building in, uh, I believe it was one of the mission impossible movies. Like the last one. Yeah, he requested that, like, that was the footage that they use uh, just because it's like, don't make it so that I hurt my ankle for nothing, you know what I mean? Uh, but it's interesting how it kind of has to happen because it was behind the scenes that they have to honor his memory a little bit after the fact. And uh, Well, then, because he, you know, the cinematographer is never in front of the camera. Maybe not never. There might be cameo appearances, but it's usually behind the camera, so you usually don't capture it. And, and so watching this movie got me kind of wondering, like, where where has Jackie Chan been? What's he been up to, you know, since, like, this seems like probably one of his last major motion pictures. I know he was in a movie called The Foreigner that I haven't seen. Um, but it, it kind of seems like when he released his uh, autobiography, which he was actually very honest and and kind of let people know that not only was he – he, I believe he called himself a bastard and he just kind of spoke to the idea that he wasn't good to his kids and he was like cheating on his wife with Miss China. I believe it said like he, he was, it seems like he kind of like caught a lot of guff for that. A lot of people were writing like bad things and he kind of just faded away. He's been in a couple of animator movies where he's not his face. Like he was in one of the, uh, he was in Kung Fu Panda three. I mean, I kind of hope that he does have a bit of a comeback. I know he's pretty old and he probably can't do the same things. And that's what I was saying. A lot of people say about this movie is that like, you could see Jackie Chan's age in it. 
And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, especially for for an actor who we've watched since he was super young to like see him still doing the same thing. But like, it's like Bruce Willis in you know, the new diehards, like a lot of people don't like that. I can't tell you I've seen the newest diehard, but it's like, it's interesting to see how a older actor deals with his age. They get a lot more creative. I feel like uh, Bruce Willis, including in their fight scenes, they know they, and they probably use more stunt actors whenever available. I don't, I don't exactly know that if Jackie Chan had a stunt double on this, cause I know he's, he's not really against it, but he tries to do as much as he possibly can because he thinks he's going to give the best performance. Um, but that's where he's able to get more creative. Like how can I still do a really creative fight scene, but not overdo myself because he's not 30 or 25. Like he was when he started doing all this. And that's where a lot of his, I think that's where a lot of his, you know, comedy comes out too, is again, during the fighting. Yeah. And I think a skilled director is somebody who can like really bring that out and someone and I was actually very surprised to learn that this movie was directed by somebody we may be familiar with, even if we haven't heard his name or seen his face before. Uh, Rennie Harlan directed this movie, and he was actually the director for Die Hard 2 and Deep Blue Sea, and he was a producer on Cliffhanger, the uh, Sylvester Stallone movie. Um, so this guy's actually got some you know, like movies that we've seen underneath his belt. Yeah, he's a... Uh... He's not one of the, you know, most well-known directors, but if you, even if you just check out his IMDb page, he's got really credible sources. And I actually think this movie turned out really well, probably because of his success as a director. I mean, if they just got some random director to do this, probably wouldn't have been as good, but he's, he's been through the ringer. He's been through the studios and he's been through Hollywood he knows how to direct a big budget movie like this. And that's probably why this movie turned a lot better than I thought it was going to be, including the talent, you know, of course. Yeah. And uh, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta say that this guy's learned from his mistakes. He was a producer on cutthroat Island, which is one of the biggest budget, biggest flop movies that ever like existed. Um, have you seen cutthroat Island with Gina Davis? Yeah. It's been a while since I've rewatched it, but yeah. I mean, that was one of the biggest flops in, in uh, at least Hollywood history uh, because they spent so much money making it look authentic and it just didn't do well. I didn't think it was that great. I mean, but then again, you know, I'm still learning filmmaking. I'm, not, I'm nowhere near, you know, any status whatsoever. So I can't say I could do a better job, which is why I'm, I'm usually more on the filmmaker side, even when the movie sucks. I'm still on their side because I understand it's really, really hard. Oh yeah. I, I mean, it's been a long time since I've watched Cutthroat Island as well. I do not recall it being as bad as the internet makes it out to be. Yeah. Oh, he was the director on Cutthroat Island as well. Um, yeah. I actually, as from what I remember, I remember liking it. I watched that with my dad when I was a kid, but he, yeah, he, I mean, he's got some interesting ones on here that he directed. He's got, the Long Kiss Goodnight, which is another Gina Davis movie. Uh, Mind Hunters, which I don't think that's the show. It says it came out in 2004. Um, oh, yeah. No, it's not the show. The uh, the director, yeah, definitely brought out the best in both of the, the mains. And, like, he, he did a great job with the movie. Oh, definitely. Uh, like I said, I don't think 
when I first saw that Jackie Chan and Johnny Knoxville were in a movie, I just thought, oh, so it's basically Rush Hour with a twist. And it kind of hit a lot of the same beats that Rush Hour hit. You know, they got these two characters that were like unlikely characters to ever be in a movie together. And they become friends at the end. You know, maybe it was a little bit rehashed just because it was kind of made for a different audience because most of it, you know, production was for the Chinese audience. It's actually funny trying to do some like research on the behind the scenes and stuff because like the vast majority of the behind the, the scenes, like, DVD commentary type videos that you would find are all like Jackie Chan doing interviews in Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so going back to the plot a little bit, we find out partway through the movie that the girl that uh, Connor Watts, ja- uh, Johnny Knoxville's character saw get murdered by this bad guy, slipped him a cell phone as he was, as he was getting away. Uh, and so the whole point of this movie kind of becomes to, like for part of the movie was to get the cell phone charged. Then once they got the cell phone charged, they find out that it's locked by a pass, uh, like thumbprint code. And they say that, okay, well, if Victor Wong's thumb unlocks this phone, we can prove that he's the matador, which is like super shaky evidence at best. Maybe, maybe once you find out what's on the phone, but it turns out that that's not the case. Victor Wong does not unlock the phone. And they both get arrested again because it's the second time they've been arrested after escaping from the Chinese police. Uh, I believe it's the Hong Kong police the second time. Uh, and so the the Green Power Ranger. The yeah, yep, the Green, yep. Um, yep. <laughs> but the <laughs> uh, so fortunately for Jackie Chan, he's got this girl that we see meet in the beginning of the movie, who's also working on the inside the the Hong Kong police. And she helps them to not only examine the phone, but also escape. And on the phone, they find this symbol. And it's a symbol. It's like just a G with some like design around it. But Jackie Chan instantly knows where it is because it's the same place where his partner died at the very beginning of the movie. This kind of takes us to the end of the, the movie where they're back on the docks where his partner died. And he sees this Victor Wong character, the character that has been made up to be the bad guy for the vast majority of the movie talking to someone else and the someone else, his face is obscured because he's kind of like ducking around boxes, but the someone else winds up and shoots this guy who he thought was the bad guy. And so it kind of like leaves this interesting double fake where, you know, you're expecting the movie to go a certain way. You're expecting to prove that, Jackie Chan's theories have been right the whole time and that he, you know, he's vindicated by being able to prove that this bad guy is the bad guy that he thought he was. We come to find out that, uh, I mean, spoiler alert, his partner never actually dies and is in fact the matador, the Hispanic Chinese kingpin (laughs) that he's been in hiding for these past 10 years Basically, his reasoning for it was like, you want to be on the Hong Kong police and sit back and watch these guys, these bad guys that we chase make millions of dollars while, you know, we get paid like a meager wage to to do the right thing. And at this point, they already have his daughter captured and they have her in this like ship type, uh, like a lodge in a ship. And this is another one of the 
great points that the that the set designers had in the movie is they eventually get into this like big kind of climactic fight scene and a boat winds up crashing into this ship and it starts sinking. And in the scene where this daughter is like locked away in this lodge, they have the water just like seep up through the floorboards. And I can't imagine that's easy to like not only build a whole room, but also have it so it can be flooded. And the way that the water just kind of seeped up through the floorboards, it seemed like a really deliberate choice to, to make the set uh, a deliberate set choice. We'll say. I uh, actually, if you watch that scene, it has a striking resemblance to the scene in Titanic where Jack is handcuffed to the pipe and Rose is trying to find the, the key to unlock it so they both don't drown. And it kind of happens almost the same way. Even some of the wardrobe and the, the, the shots that they do almost kind of recreate that, that scene. But speaking to how they probably did it was at a quick, you know, at a very quick random shot in the dark, I would say they probably got a huge swimming pool or something f- full of water and they've got the room on some kind of rig that where the room gets lowered down into the pool and they got holes in the bottom. So as the room gets farther and farther down into the pool of water, it starts seeping up from the bottom, kind of like a, like a, a reservoir would start to fill up from the bottom. And that's probably how they filmed it. I, I don't exactly know, but that would probably be the cheapest way to do it. So I would imagine that. I don't think there's a garden hose in the corner of the room behind <laughs> camera fill, filling up the room. I would imagine that anything where you're doing a film and there has to be some sort of flooding or like a high amount of water. I'm sure you've seen it. I don't know if maybe our audience has seen it, but they've got these gigantic, maybe two feet deep swimming pools. They call them, what do they call like water sets or, or something where it's essentially like everything in that place is designed to get wet. They've got like rain simulation above. I can only imagine that that's like a huge undertaking and a huge like drain on your budget. I mean, going back to cutthroat Island, like to, to do all the waterworks and something like that or water world has got to be just a tremendous undertaking. Oh, I'm sure that, Everything in the in the studio is rang with electricity, probably literally everything. And so you can't get any of that shit wet. They make crazy expensive like rain jackets for cameras or these like seal proof cases for these cameras so they can go underwater and film stuff and still be able to do the crafting and filmmaking without ever having to worry about water seeping in. So that set alone, I'd, I'd say those are probably some of the most expensive sets out there. Unless, you know, you're building like uh, like in Game of Thrones and stuff, before they were doing a lot more CGI, they were doing a lot more practical stuff. They were building actual, you know, makeshift stone walls and shit like that. Like massive architectural buildings. Um, but yeah, I'm sure that submerged. I don't know exactly what they call them. They used to call them submerged tanks. And it's just one big studio probably in the back. So if it ever floods, it doesn't flood all the other ones. And that's just mainly designed to just everything in there is going to get wet. included. You know, now that you mention it, this, this movie itself, Skip Trace was 
like the vast majority of all the shots were practical shots. Like they, you know, like they have a scene where uh, they have this like recycle cart where the guy like has clearly been spending a lot of time like collecting all these like plastic bottles. And it's not just like, like you could tell they actually have a bunch of bags of like filled up with plastic bottles. Like they actually took the time to like build this out and stack it up. Like I'm sure you've seen where, uh, you know, they have like, giant stacks of stuff stacked on the back of a scooter because they're taking it all in one go. I think there was only one scene that was like, I would describe as maybe questionable CGI. And it's the scene where they're again, running from this Russian crew and they have to jump on the zip line and they like do this cut to this guy, like working his way up the zip line. And it's just like, like you can almost see the like heavy black lines around the outside of the guy. Cause he's green screened in front of like a mountain. Um, oh yeah. The, the safety line. So if yeah. the actor falls, they don't plummet to their death. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's another thing this movie did really well is that it's like, they figured out what they could make real and they did Like we were talking about the, the um, houses on the water that they had that wound up falling over. Like they built those. You can see that in just the like the bloopers and like the stuff that's actually there i mean all in all I, i'd watch this movie again i was just talking to my wife earlier when i was told we were getting ready to record she's like oh yeah we need to watch that again like this was a a good movie it, it may not have been well i mean it was a good choice for for the show but it was not what i was expecting when i walked into it you, you know you see like a movie that's on voodoo which could be a uh, voodoo thanks to the streaming service voodoo for like having this up there for us to watch it for free. But you think when you see something on like a third party production site, like or not third party, a third party streaming site like that, that's like the only way you can watch is because they've crammed a bunch of tide ads into it. Uh, you wouldn't expect a whole lot, but I was, I was surprised and like thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Yeah. I, I would definitely give this, I mean, if, if you're going to go for Rotten Tomatoes, you know, kind of scoring, I think Rotten Tomatoes gave him like a, a 39% or maybe like a 49%. It was pretty low. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Uh, I'll pull it up right now. Uh, I, I don't follow a lot of Rotten Tomatoes reviews. Because oh, yeah. I, in my opinion, I don't think Rotten Tomatoes is accurate. I would have given this, if we're going to go 100% being the best thing that's ever been filmed ever, I would give this probably a solid like 79 or 80. I think it has some really good effort to it. Yeah. The story made sense. There was, you know, there was always something that falls a little flat, whether it's a setup that didn't work or a shot that didn't look that great, or maybe the third act doesn't really hit, but this, this was an actual pretty well budgeted film that turned out very well in my opinion. Yeah, you you were right on the nose. Actually, Rotten Tomatoes gave it a thirty nine percent score. Metacritic gave it a fifty. Uh, Fifty. I, I think both of those are low. Uh, like I said, it might just be that the the two main characters are are actors who I really like have have been a follower of. Like, fuck, Jackass Three was my wife and I's first real date. And, <laughs> like, I love I I love these guys, and the movie is is. 100% watchable it's enjoyable the the cheesiness like Jackie Chan freaking singing Adele is like it it adds to the character of the movie it doesn't detract like like uh, let's see what's a good example like in Kick-Ass 2 when they have that scene where 
they like basically watch the music video of the the little pop group that they're that they're watching and it's like it's so long that it makes me want to turn the movie off it's not <laughs> like it, there's none of that there's no like drawn out jokes that just make me hate it it's it's an all around enjoyable film yeah with with this one one of the hardest things to do is to get people to sit through your movie, whether it's an hour and a half or now these three and a half hour long movies that they're coming out with. You want to enjoy that time you're spending in the movie theater or at home, wherever you're watching it. If you have to pause the movie to go take a dump, uh, you're probably not that invested in that movie. But if you're like, I'm going to hold it for the next hour and a half because this is turning out to be really good, then yeah, you, it's a, it's a well-made movie. But I'm not basing that only off of if you have to dump or not. Yeah, but but let's be honest. Like, all you whiners out there that needed an intermission for Avengers Endgame because you can't hold your, your water for three hours, lay off the fucking soda. It's a good movie. Granted, they, they do give you enormous size cups. It's it's like a liter of cola. Yeah, you don't have a liter-sized bladder? <laughs> no, I'm 5'2". <five> <laughs> You know, I'm a bladder of a small child. Yeah, well, I am a small child. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, I think we've said all we can say about this movie. Brad, did you have anything else that you you wanted to say about Skip Trace? Yeah, I would say, all, all in all, it definitely achieved the goal it was going for. It's it's a new twist on an old story. It's always you know. That buddy comedy film, like I said, kind of where it kind of looks like Rush Hour, where these two characters, you're like, oh, they're not going to get along, and they're probably going to have a lot of drama throughout the whole movie, and then they do, and then somewhere in the third act, they you know start working well together and accomplish their goal. That story has been told so many different times and so many different ways, but the way that this film tells that story, it's still entertaining. I didn't once think, oh God. This movie sucks. I thought it was great the whole way through. I mean, I even, again, watched it again for the podcast and enjoyed it immensely. So in my, in my book, uh, well done. We're well done, uh, filmmakers. Yeah, I, I think that's one thing that I, I love about doing this show with you is that, like, not only do, especially now that we changed the format a little bit, you get a chance to, like, really look at a movie and really appreciate it for what it is and what they've tried to do and what they've done. And the idea that, you know, this movie went so under the radar and went so unnoticed. Like, I had never even heard of this before when I saw the the two of them together on the poster. It's It's just a shame that we kind of, like, there's so much being made that we we lose things like this. And that's one thing that I really appreciate about the show is that we get to go back and like give movies a second chance. Like, like I said before, I would have never watched, I would have never watched doom if I wasn't like, you know, wanting to watch it for the show because it's just like, I heard it was bad or, you know, with skip trace, like I had never heard about it before. And I'm out there digging for like the weird stuff. Like granted the weird stuff means we, we have to watch fucking, ICP uh, big money hustlers uh, <laughs> classic from, from classic. time to time. But you know, you squeeze in some gems like this and you really like, I, like I said, I'm going to go back and watch this movie again. Not, not tomorrow. Cause I've watched it twice now today, but uh, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah. I would say the best part of us doing this podcast is we're, 
we're essentially giving that redemption to movies that maybe kind of slipped under the radar. And uh, I think most of the movies we cover are ones that either did well in like America, but didn't do well overseas, or in this case did extremely well overseas and not so much in America. And that could be, you know, maybe the, it just didn't get distribute, distributed very well throughout the U.S. Or, I don't know, maybe they just didn't think it was that good. But when you're making, uh, what was it, 100-something million yen? It was 870 million Chinese yuan, which actually translates to 133 million uh, American dollars, U.S. dollars. So and that's it, quite a big chunk of change, even yeah. for a movie that was... Probably, I wonder what their. I always wonder what their budget was and how much they spent on movies versus what they made back. Because most movies, if they get big, they make their money back on the merchandising. Uh, like I mean, look at Marvel; they waste so much money making Marvel movies, and they usually don't get a good return on investment. Now they do because they're so popular now. But it's the merchandise that brings that kickback into the next film. Whereas in this one, there's there's no sequel. There's no. There's no next big budget Jackie Chan and Johnny Knoxville movie. At least I don't know of one. It needs to be. I would watch 10 more Jackie Chan and Johnny Knoxville movies. I would definitely watch a sequel. And usually sequels don't do as good. But you never know. This is kind of the prime time. Maybe we need to write an angry letter to (laughs) the Chinese uh, filmmakers over there and say, why is there not a number two? Remember that movie that nobody watched? You should make a second one. Um, just to answer your question, this movie had a budget of 30 to 60 million U.S. dollars, which is quite the uh, gap, but it, it, it at least doubled that at the box office. So, And that's just overseas alone, not, not knowing what it made here or possibly in Europe. Yeah, so I think they did well for themselves. I'm happy they made it. I'm happy that we watched it. Brad, thank you for joining me on the show. Any any last words before we go? No, I think you said them all pretty much. Uh, it's always a pleasure doing these reviews with you. Yeah, so uh, if you guys are interested, check us out on Twitter, at Absurd Asylum. As always, fuck Facebook. Um, and you can email us at absurdasylum at gmail.com. Um, thanks for stopping by the show, and we hope you enjoyed it. See you. See you.